0: We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello again, Courtney.
1: Hi, how are you going?
0: I'm doing splendidly. It's the sun shining after what seems like about six months of rain.
1: Oh, it's been crazy. My like driveway at home has been completely flooded. Um Multiple times, and uh, oh, and because yep. <laughs> of the wind as well, um, the, our front house. That, so I'm in like a set of three. The front house is a, like back gate, like completely fell over, and it's just kind of on the other side of the the house at the moment because <laughs> of the weather. Yeah, um, yeah, it's been pretty crazy, but it's nice outside now. Yay!
0: <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's been it's been interesting. So it's, it's our first winter with a with a new puppy. Well, newish puppy. Mm, mm-hmm. Who's, who's actually starting to get quite big now. And he's a border collie and he's the perfect kind of, you know, animal sponge you know, mm. for, for <laughs> absorbing rain and mud and all I'm that just, sort of stuff. I'm
1: just imagining you not, like with your puppy just like washing dishes.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's basically what it's like. Yeah, he's, yeah, he comes in dripping wet after, mm-hmm. you know, we've taken him out for some exercise and just – you Know we can't just take him out at any stage, we can't. It's not like we can wait for the clouds to leave and the sun to come out. It's like, well, yeah, these are the times we can go out, you know, <laughs> with other things to do as well. Um, but yeah, it's oh, fun, mm,
1: yeah, sounds it. Whereas, yeah, my cat is um very, very scared of any form of rain, so we'll climb under beds and and cower in the corner until it's nice and sunny. Um, yeah, yeah, completely different. <laughs>
2: Oh, well, at least life. we don't
1: have to walk the cat i very happy about that
2: <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> oh, L- life is a pet owner hey yep, pretty
1: yeah pretty much <laughs> hey.
0: anyway uh moving oh, on from pets yep. um we've got a, a kind of our final installment if you like in our sort of series looking at indigenous research and indigenous health uh, sort of loosely coinciding with Nate Week, which was not too long ago. Hmm.
1: And, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Who who, who did you organise for us to talk to today?
1: Yeah, so we have uh, Dr Emma Haynes and Mr Caleb Rivers with us today. And uh, Emma uh, recently, well, recently two years or so, completed her PhD in um, RHD, rheumatic heart disease, and the Indigenous perspective around that. Um, And if you have never wanted to read a PhD, then this is the one to read because it is very, very interesting. So um, the common perspectives of a PhD is that they're very long and boring and very dry, Um, but I have read Emma's PhD and it is a fascinating piece of work into Indigenous perspectives around rheumatic heart disease. Uh, So Mm. she has a lot of knowledge and understanding about uh, collaborating Research and community perspective and Indigenous perspective all into a fabulous um, kind of almost a piece of art, I would say. Um, And then uh, Caleb is an Indigenous student who's um, done his undergraduate in biomedical studies and he's just embarking on his research uh, into aged care, I believe, which is Mm. also a very, very interesting area. So we have two very knowledgeable guests on the podcast today.
0: Yeah, that's a really good chat. And I guess it gives us a little bit more kind of good quality kind of background into doing uh, research with Indigenous people and obviously how they should be involved in that and sort of, you know, really informing the process from start to finish rather than just being included for this section and that section, you know, Mm. because it seems easy to do it that way but yeah i think yeah as we talk about you you know indigenous research achieves much much better and more useful outcomes um when you have indigenous voices as caleb was saying privileged all the way through
1: absolutely Uh, yeah
0: but yeah i I think without further ado let's let you all have a listen to see what we talk about enjoy pleasure to welcome Dr. Emma Haynes and Mr. Caleb Rivers to the podcast. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you for
3: having
0: us. <laughs> yeah. So um, do you guys want to just give uh, us a bit of a brief intro as to who you are and, and what you're doing at the moment? Um, and then, you know, we've, we've got a few things to talk about today, but we'll, we'll start with that. Sure.
3: Um, so I'm working with Caleb. On one of my postdoc roles, and I have a separate role at the School of Population Health, mostly working with uh, Judy Katznellenbogen and also working um, with SWAMS in Bunbury. And so I completed my PhD two years ago or so, and um, that was an incredible opportunity to really ground myself in a few particular things to do with working in the Aboriginal health space. So the topic was rheumatic heart disease, but and and I still remain really embedded in the topic area. But I think what it also really opened up for me was appreciating the value of developing research capacity as, you know, to be right out there, use a, you know, good Marxist phrase as a tool of liberation, but really something that has the potential to make a big difference. I'm very, very passionate about the capacity for critical thinking. You know, research to me is ultimately about critical thinking. One of my great mentors through the PhD was a Yolnu woman, Miniature Marawilli, who spent a lot of time getting me to answer. What is the question? And she somehow knew that, that really boiling yourself down to the really the research question that you really are trying to ask was the way to start. It took me a long time to really understand why she kept asking me that. So mm-hmm. she was a very wise mentor, but really a lot of learning is about you have to take that journey for yourself. Nobody's going to tell you how to do it. So she just at me with a couple of really deep questions and over the two or three years that we worked together while I was doing my PhD, I slowly came to understand where she was getting me to. Anyway, that's uh, that's me in a nutshell for now.
4: Hmm. And Caleb? Yeah, yeah so I um, um, finished the undergrad at UWA in, in 2018, um, just a Bachelor of Biomed. Um, and uh, I got approached by um, Dawn Bessarab, Professor Dawn Bessarab, uh, at the end of last year, whether I was interested in doing some, uh, getting involved with research. Um, so, yeah, this year has sort of been a bit of a trial, sort of, you get to see how, how I, um, if, it, if it sort of fit for me to, to do research. So I've just been involved with them, i doing a um, systematic review around um, Indigenous aged care. Um, So we've just been um, looking at models of care and how they're implemented uh, around the world involving Indigenous older people and um, done through like an Indigenous sort of methodology. um, So privileging the voices of the elders and um, what they see as the priorities for ageing. So we're just, um, yeah, Emma and I are just working on on that at the moment. Um, Yeah, that's pretty much where I'm up to at the moment. (laughs)
0: Okay. Well, yeah. What did you do, your undergrad in, Caleb?
4: Um, biomedical science grade. Yeah.
0: Okay. And yeah, so
1: uh, were you thinking about becoming a doctor-doctor,
4: um, medical yeah. doctor? Yeah, still sort of thinking whether to – Um, yeah, I, I, I do want to become a, like a clinician, but mm. I, I'm really enjoying the research as well. So it's – yeah, I think it's a bit of a um, – yeah, just sort of deciding – which one comes first at the moment. Yeah, so it's Mm -hmm. such a terrific opportunity to to work with some, yeah, really, yeah, some terrific people. Actually, on the Fridays, I work with um, uh, Judy as well and and, uh, work pretty closely with Sam Stiles at the School of Population Health. So just, um, Mm -hmm. sorry, I forgot to mention that. (laughs) We're just sort of um, doing code mapping at the moment. So, Um. So I think there's our SNOMED uh, ICP codes and
2: mm-hmm.
4: um, yeah, just different ways that diagnoses diagnoses are are mapped and yeah. trying to come up with a uniform approach to that because there's a few different ways of
0: yeah, yeah. Snow, SNOMED is interesting because they use that a lot in primary care but there's yeah. not been a lot of <laughs> what, <laughs> uh, what, translation what to ICP. So it's a t- it's a way of coding, kind of like ICD is a way of coding. Ah, oh, um, okay. But yeah, y- yeah, you have to kind of map SNOMED codes to ICD codes. Oh. You know, you know, and so it's great that you're doing some of that work, Caleb, because it's much yeah. needed.
4: Yeah. I think the other one was ICP ICPC as well, Craig. Yeah, ICPC codes. Yep. Yeah. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. <laughs> so just adding yeah, no, those three.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's that's yeah. great. Yeah. So, and we should acknowledge that we're we're um, having this conversation. I think we're all on Wajak Noongar land today. Um, wh- who are your people, Caleb?
4: Yeah. So my, um, on my dad's side, it's um, Gija and Gunyani. Uh, that's from the, the Horse Creek area in in the Kimberleys. And uh, mm-hmm. my mum's Wungari um, and Yamaji, which is um, she she was born and grew up in Waluna,
2: mm-hmm.
4: yeah, a little place up there. Into the desert <laughs> yeah so <laughs> um yeah but I've, I've been in Perth for 20 years now so yep. yeah so uh, Perth's my home <laughs> oh, oh very good oh, sounds so
1: like- so so both of you now are working in like indigenous research research um space what was the the driving factors for you guys to to get involved in the indigenous perspective Whoever can go first. <laughs>
4: <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, Do you want to start, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I just, um, yeah, just. It's been like being it like from an Indigenous background myself. It, um, just sort of, it was really pleasing that when I first started the, even with the guys at the school of Pop health, they were sort of talking about how the, the life expectancy of Indigenous people is increasing. Mm-hmm. Um and so that sort of that sort of really um shines a lot on what, what Emma and I are and what the project we're a part of and that um that's a new sort of there's a new issue which is a is a good it's a good problem for that we need to come up <laughs> with a, yeah, a like a culturally yeah. sort of appropriate aged care plan, which is yeah, it's a good good issue to have. So um mm. and both of my parents are like just in into their seventies now as well, so it's kinda yeah, a bit, a bit of a personal quest, I suppose, <laughs> for me personally. Mm. So, yeah,
1: yeah, it's, it's always good to have like a, a personal uh, passion drive for the things you're doing because it because it does affect you mm. and it, like it, it just makes it so much better and more involved and yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good yeah. um,
4: good thing to do. Yeah, definitely.
3: And I- from my point of view. Um, <laughs> Well, I guess, you know, I am a researcher by nature, so you know that's uh, <laughs> my character. Um, and I've been, you know, increasingly involved in the Aboriginal health space doing research, but not necessarily my own research. And so when I decided that um, it was time to do a PhD, I approached Dawn, Dawn's the common link here, um, to say, I didn't know what my topic was going to be, but I wanted her to be my supervisor because I knew that um, I had lots to learn from her and, mm-hmm. you know, she'd just be a, an incredible guide. And that was then, you know, sort of after that, after the fact of having agreed that we'd work together, then the RHD um, lived experience of RHD topic had come up through a CRE that she was involved in and so on and they needed someone to do it. So, you know, I wasn't never went into it going, oh, I must know more about RHD, but it was... Oh, great here's a project that i can work with dawn on <clears throat> um and i think the bit that's to do with say like the projects i'm doing at Swams and where i'm looking to do with my postdoc and that what i was saying before about the particular um interest for me now in developing research skills is when i started working with the so I went to live there in Arnhem, northeast Arnhem, on another to work on a project, still RHD but not my PhD, mm-hmm. and that was doing um, d- facilitating the delivery of a cert II in community health research in the local community there, and we were at, you know sort of a practical based um, on the job training kind of scenario, and when I saw the um, interest and appetite for research when you start to bring it to you know so we have this both-way learning approach model which is um to bring you know the western concepts of research giving them meaning usually based on metaphor and alignment with things that the only do naturally so everybody researches in some way their environment. You know, you are all the time taking in information and assessing it and making a making a informed judgment about what you're going to do with that information. Um, you know, in, in lots of ways, that's how we live all the time. And then that sort of, you know, that other bit of the critical thinking is also something that we all do inherently to think critically about what's happening and what we're going to do next. So we have this both way learning that, that allowed us to kind of bring the two knowledges together. And when I saw that even on a very small scale with a very small project, um, the impacts of that, that was what gave me that passion to continue. And, you know, so in different ways, I'm continuing to apply that learning through next projects. Not, not, not the one necessarily I'm doing with Caleb, but other mm-hmm. work, the work at SWAMS and some more work. I'm going back up to Arnhem on Sunday to work again with the Yolnu that they've asked me to go back and do it, and this time they are 100% leading the project. I really don't. I do have a kind of idea of what it's about, but it really, you know, miniatures research questions, so fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) It's, uh, It's so exciting. I am so excited to see how it works out. She's really turning the lens around. She wants to go and ask the white people that are coming into her community, the Ballander, why are you here? Why did you come here to work here? What are you trying to get out of it? Because she's, you know, she's got a lot of, I I know, you know, she's got a feeling that a lot of people just come for a holiday and a visit and an adventure, but, you know, what do they really know and what do they really want to know about working with Aboriginal people? So it's going to be really fascinating to see how that comes out.
2: (laughs)
0: i just have a quick question for you. As as a non-cardiovascular researcher, um, can you explain what the rheumatic part of rheumatic heart disease is?
3: Yeah. So um, it's inflammation. So rheumatic heart disease is a autoimmune response to a very common germ, strep A, which causes that very, very sore throat, which we've all had, our kids have all had. But um, when your immune system responds inappropriately so it's sort of gone into overdrive um the white blood cells are you know flooding the system and where the heart disease part comes in is the protein of the heart valve is very similar to the protein of the strep so that's why it's an autoimmune disease because you know, the immune system, instead of attacking the strep, is it attacking the child's heart valve usually. So it's also, um, well, certainly the precursor condition, the rheumatic fever is predominantly in children 4 to 14 or 15 or so on. And then, um, you know, obviously the heart damage can be past that age. Uh, but, but we also see, and there's a very different kind of responses, different children respond very differently. Some just have recurrent fevers but others as young as um for getting heart disease and needing valve replacements so are very very young children mm. having heart surgery as a result of rheumatic fever
0: mm. and is, what, what do we know about how this can be prevented or treated you know at, at an early stage
3: yeah um we know quite a lot in some ways and not in other ways
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Sounds like standard medicine. (laughs)
3: Yeah. I mean, look, it is, you know, it is about um, preventing the transmission. And, in fact, it's been interesting how um, COVID has perhaps changed the conversation a little bit now. But, um, you know, it's the usual things about preventing transmission of a germ, strep. Uh, So there's a lot. So I guess the thing is that... um, <laughs> going on the public record. Mm-hmm. But I maybe uh, diverge a little bit. So there's the um and I'm not I'm not suge- suggesting that I'm contradicting, but rather that I think there's other things we can be thinking about. So the main health promotion promotion messages are to do with um, social distancing, as you'd expect,
2: mm-hmm. including
3: um, everybody sleeping in a separate bed. But <clears throat> From the Yonu point of view anyway, and I'll just speak from them, their point of view because they're the people I spent time with, um, there's a lot of social benefit and strength and cohesion and, and good feeling that comes from families sleeping close together. You know, it's it's deeply, deeply culturally appropriate. It isn't obviously in some cases it isn't the desire. So and then when you know, we, one of the problems I have with the whole um, sleeping problem is that there isn't an easy solution because housing is a problem. So it's one of those things where you don't want to be telling somebody, you should do this, and they can't because they don't have the infrastructure to do it. They just don't have the beds. But on the other hand, you don't want to make people feel bad about a choice that they're making that may actually give them a benefit and a strength. And then, I so then I think it's also really to do with being much clearer about the reasons for that so like we're learning with COVID, you know the germ needs to be passed (laughs) there are reasons why it passes so for example sleeping a child head to toe if a child's symptomatic with any kind of infection you know you could have them facing the other way and i think there's a whole lot of messaging that i haven't seen any of around like kids always will share a pie and share the coke You know resources are limited somebody hasn't found the money to buy a pie and a coke but they're not going to just have it to themselves you know and that's kind of thing where i think um there's some other really simple things that we could do as well that haven't necessarily found their way into that there's always a knowledge translation problem that's maybe where i'm coming to
1: (laughs) yeah it sounds like there's like there's a lot of things that maybe as white people with our own understanding and our own family structure mm. um it it becomes uh, complicated because we just assume that the way that we think is the way that everyone's going to think which is so not true um and then the messaging becomes convoluted and complicated and there's just things that we don't think about um that could make everyone's lives a lot simpler when it comes to public health and prevention strategies just yeah exactly like the sleeping um and the the cohabitation and the housing problem there's all these little things that kind of influence that maybe we're not all thinking about at once trying to create this this big model of um preventative health um yeah it's really interesting
0: Mm. and and so emma in the course of doing that work and you've just given us a great example what did you find um, was the feedback you were getting from like the Yolngu people, you know, as you, as you were investigating this issue and then you were saying, look, this is what, this is what current advice is, you know, how do you guys feel about that advice? And then they've obviously come back to you with some kind of cultural issues that they've, that they've identified.
3: Yeah. So, um, I digested it into, um, four really specific messages and, readily available in lots of formats, presented at quite a number of times, so around the place there'll be, you know, different PowerPoints and things, but it's, it is in um, various publications and including the thesis. But, um, and also actually another really accessible way, we quicker put this in the link, is um, myself, Judy and Dawn did a med student lecture, which is, we recorded, and I'm pretty sure it's just always available. We've got the link for it anyway. Mm, Cool. Um, so that gives a bit of everything so it gives judy's epi kind of view on the world and dawn just talking about um you know cultural security and strength and so on and then my stuff that includes these messages which i'm going to say is taking account the feelings of the hearer so this is such a strong thing for the yonu if you um in the negative terms about risk and tell information give information in a way that makes people feel bad scared worried they're not going to listen so the first number one thing more important than anything else is feeling good about yourself and your life and more importantly your community most importantly so so underneath that sits not Trying, if possible, not to use the language of risk, and there are other ways to express that information. Risk is a highly medicalized, quite pejorative-sounding term. If you're not careful, and it's also confusing. You know, quite often turn it back to people to say, well, "What do you mean?" And you know, people struggle to explain risk. <laughs> you know, we kind of get it inherently, but actually, when you say, well, "What does that? Re- what do you really mean by that?" It's not that intelligible. So feelings. Um, giving a full and clear story don't be patronizing take the time and that might include having to think about use of metaphors and both you know some way to establish a both-way learning ground Take, but take the time to give the whole story and that might take a long time Mm -hmm. (laughs) Explaining germ theory for example you know you might start somewhere really you know a long way back um giving the information at a community level so not individualised health promotion messaging. It's a really, really simple, easy thing to reform, reframe. You need to do this, you need to do that. If you keep smoking, then this is going to happen. So instead of doing that, it's talking about what you can see happening at a community, family, community, and starting with um, that. Well, anyway, there's a whole lot of story in there, but how you could do that in a strength-based way, What's going well? What do you hope for? How could we do things differently at a community level? And then uh, the other, fourth one was about expertise and trust. So in an ideal world, you have time to build trust. But for the all-new anyway, they're also quite happy to hear someone say, I've trained in this for many years. I'm the expert in this field, and that's why you should trust me to when I'm giving you this information. And... You know, ideally you spend time, but if you don't have that time, they're very respectful of knowledge. And and the people somebody who spent a long time learning something really does know what they're talking about and is worth listening to. But that isn't immediately obvious to them the difference between the health worker, the nurse, the cardiologist. They don't all you know, they're all I mean, this is in where I was, you know, they're all walking around in their shorts, <laughs> maybe wearing a health service shirt, but it's not necessarily, you know, people do it kind of deliberately. They don't want to share their status, but actually um, for the Aboriginal patient, it makes a difference to know where you are on the hierarchy. Mm. That's really interesting.
1: And this has, so that was kind of all part of your, your PhD. Yeah. Um, have you uh, continued those themes into your postdoc that you're doing?
3: Uh, Yeah. um, So I continue to I've been presenting those messages in different ways in different places. Mm -hmm. So like met students and um, publications and so on. At the moment now I'm kind of going right back though to working say like with the, the Southwest Aboriginal Medical Service to begin at the point of where are the community strengths and where do community want to build evidence around what they know works well. So there's a it's a, um um really um putting all of it all of that thinking and work under the umbrella of data sovereignty. But that could be the subject of another podcast. <laughs> y- yes. It seems like a big one.
0: <laughs> it, yeah, that is a big area and we actually had a recent guest on from the east coast um professor megan williams uh who sort of touched on on that and it's it's that concept of uh, from an indigenous perspective if you're doing research about us don't do it without us and that's all yeah. about them you know kind of having a a central role in in how the the data are used interpreted etc um and yeah i guess that sort of segues nicely onto um, the work that you guys, Caleb and Emma, are both doing together. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about that and your experience? And and, and Caleb, from your perspective, what, what observations have you made about being involved in research as an Indigenous man so far? Yeah,
4: Craig. Um, I suppose, um, yeah, a lot of a lot of the research that I've sort of like the papers that I've read and stuff. Uh, Emma and I've discussed it quite a bit a lot of um, research around indigenous people seems to be like, very very deficit focused of um, sort of yeah a lot of it's sort of um, sort of speaking about like the the gaps and the inequalities and the health and um, yeah, and then it very rarely like there's very little paper on um, Suggesting how to close the actually close the gap, and um, I think there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of goodwill and a lot of people identifying issues and stuff. Um, but um, I suppose where the data sovereignty sort of comes into it as well is that um, maybe a better approach to it would be to to take a strengths-based approach and maybe look at, look at the areas that. Um, you know, like, yeah, sort of look at the positives, and then, um, like Emma was saying, it's all about context when you're working with Aboriginal people. And um, yeah, if you that deficit focus, sort of um, context that can cause people to really shut up shop and yeah, um, can sort of be hard to sort of really um, communicate and sort of um, come up with some. Uh, sort of yeah. solutions that are going to actually be meaningful, and um, hmm. yeah, just sort of found yeah. a lot of deficit-based sort of research and language. Can I and, um, yeah.
0: butt in there and and ask if yeah. you if you're able to give us an example of taking a strengths based approach to something you know that you've seen and, and seen it done well?
4: Yeah, um, with the um, with the stuff that we've been doing, Craig, with the um, Indigenous aged care. Um, there was a, uh, a, a study done um, in, in the Yundamu in the Northern Territory. Um, so they've got like a program called the Yundamu, Yundamu People's Program. And um, it's about uh, caring for the older people in the community instead of them having to the travel. I think it's like three or four hundred kilometres to to a residential aged care in Alice springs, which is um, yeah they can get. I mean, there's all types of issues that like loneliness and then that like it has a sort of snowball effect and affects their health and it, uh, um, just a lot of like uh, sort of bad outcomes from it. But uh, this program really it um, sort of everything was based on. The Walpri uh, people's way of seeing things, of, of viewing the world. So they, they, they refer them to themselves as the Yapa, which is like sort of like in English would say like us or we or um, ourselves, and they they refer to themselves as Yapa. So it's sort of taken a Yapa approach to it. So um, so all the uh, everything in the program is based around how they they see the world. Um. And it's um, yeah the the effect, the outcomes were more effective because it was more meaningful and um, like it actually meant something to to the Walpree people and it and it um, sort of a sense of ownership and all, all, all these type of factors came into it and it, yeah just really it, it wasn't so much based on uh, yeah on the what was seen as deficits but. They really sort of played to their strengths of who they are as as a people group, and um, and the yeah the outside the outside um, researchers were sort of just really helped facilitate that into a into a model of care. Um,
1: so it's it's kind of about bringing the community into the research.
4: Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah. yeah, that's what that's what happened in this instance. Yeah. So um, yeah, there was sorry, there was a direct quote from there that I was. I had in my, I had written down somewhere, but I, it was just, it just summed it up really well. Like, oh, I wish I had it on me right now. But yeah, but it was, um, yeah just keep sort of, looking
3: for it for a minute, and I'll just yeah. I'll just add on to what Caleb was saying. So, what we hear there is that we had some really good indicators from the community about what worked for them, so they were involved in the reporting. But it's the next bit was where the critical bit of the data sovereignty comes for me is that we take those measures and make them into something that's tangible within the health system because so often where, to me, one of the areas where we're still not bridging a gap is between knowing what community wants and being able to see that as a measurable outcome that equates to the kind of reporting that's needed by the funding body. And this is that... um, one of the bits of the thing with SWAMs is you can see they're an AMS, they have clinical funding, they have, they're have. they quite big now, they've got lots of HR to deal with. There's a lot of sort of very, you know, bureaucratic administrative um, managing that obviously, you know, they have to do, but it's very easy for them to lose sight of the community-based the strength in the community and the the value of working on on a kind of community-based, community development version of health promotion because the measures aren't there. So they might be able to say, we can see that program work really well and people got better and had, you know, good outcomes from it and we feel that we prevented other diseases from occurring or whatever it is, but but we're still um, lacking within the system ways to... Record those and turn them into tangible measures that, or, you know, um, whether it's CQI measures or you know, the sorts of things that an organisation can hold up to a funding body and say, yes, we met, we achieved our targets.
2: Hi,
0: we hope you're enjoying this episode. If you have a minute and enjoy the conversations we bring you. It'd be great if you could go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a quick rating and review. Not only do we love to get your feedback, but it also helps other people to find us. Thank you. And now back to the show.
1: Do you think there's any, any um, quick and easy solution to that? Are there any measures that we already have that we could use that just aren't being
3: implemented? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> it's the basis of. I'm just submitting ah. an intervention, healthway intervention ground. Cool, very good. Based on this idea, yeah, yeah. So, the, so program,
1: the the answer is at the moment
3: there is none. That, well, I guess there's none, but because I'm that's part of the first phase of the um uh, uh, three year project is to do yep. an audit of what is collected at Swab. Yeah, okay. Cool. And um, look at how that matches with their their reporting requirements. But I think it does also require a policy shift, of course, because funding bodies need to start asking for other kinds of measures or being prepared to um, work with other kinds of measures. Mm. And that comes back to the work that Caleb and I are doing. So we, we are looking for, in, the, that in, in that, answering that question in particular in relation to aged care. So we've got, um we you know, we're working with the team who put together the good spirit, good life, uh, 12 factors that are um, can be, there can be the planning or evaluation measures for providing good care for Aboriginal elders. And they are just starting to get that into healthcare organisations where they will take those 12 factors. That's internally in the organisation that they can use that to plan how they're going to care, and then also to track how they're measuring, how they're going. But whether that then links up with a funding body's requirements is another story. Hmm. And that's part of the work we're doing there with, in that, in that uh, role together, Caleb and
0: I. Yeah. Interesting. So this is a question for either of you. Um, and it relates to aged care and the way, I guess, the Indigenous perspectives on how that should be handled, what, Sort of family involvement there is as people you know get older. Um, obviously, there are some cultures where grandparents you know live with their with their children and their grandchildren. You know later in life. Um, how how do Aboriginal people view that process? Is is the family really involved in that, or you know do they expect that um, you know their their grandparents and whatnot? would go into this a facility? This is a
3: question for Caleb to answer,
0: absolutely, mm-hmm. I just uh, yeah. Okay, just Yeah, Caleb, do you want to give us a bit of, bit of uh, insight into that?
4: Yeah, just, just from, um, from my own personal sort of perspective, Craig, yeah, but um, we, we took my grandparents in when they were, or um, well, my grandfather and my grandmother, when they were, they were ageing and they, they passed away in our care, so we, we looked after them. Uh, at the end of their life and um but i think um you know with the work like emma and i are doing at the moment it's i think it's changing a bit to sort of take the pressure off families and because um, there's always uh, even talking about rheumatic fever and stuff before and a lot of um sort of public health issues around um around aboriginal people it's from overcrowding and a lot of people living in the same dwelling and um and it's kind of like that when you're looking after the older people as well, <laughs> yeah, um, their grandparents. So you have always got extended family dropping in, and um, yeah, it's it can become a bit of a burden. Like, I, my I know personally, like my mum, she's got Parkinson's disease now, and I'm not sure like what, what the like what the trigger of that is if it's um, genetic or I think there's there's a lot of research going into it, but it's sort of It became worse from after looking after, um, looking after our grandparents and then and looking after extended family as well. So I think the work that Emma and I are sort of doing and around um, models of care for older people, I think it's pretty important. Like it's, I think it's going to reduce a lot of other sort of public health issues with Aboriginal people. (laughs)
3: Yeah,
4: I think that makes sense. Yeah.
3: One of the findings that we've noticed in our review so far is the number of um, prefacing um, reference in the, at the start of the bits of research that we're reviewing relates to the acknowledging the value of elders in holding culture and passing on culture. So there's, you know, the obvious, um, not obvious, but there's, you know, the elder as a family member and how you care for your family and how you care for your community has been so important but there's also that recognition that you want to you know keep them alive and well as long as possible because um that they're the people that are going to pass on knowledge and one of the key things is they will not pass. No, so I should really feel, again, that Caleb should be answering this, but this is what I've observed with the Yolnu: is you, they won't pass on that knowledge until the person is ready to hear it, and they will take it to their grave, even if the person, if the person never got ready, their child, or it won't necessarily be a child, but the person who was the appropriate next generation knowledge holder, if they don't grow up, as it were, enough, you know, be ready enough to hear that information, they just won't pass it. You're not ready. There's no thing like, oh, if I don't tell you now, no one will know when I die. It's like, well, you weren't ready. So, you know, there is that feeling like we do, you don't want to do know You want to keep the elders alive for what they mean, for the, the strength of culture for everyone. And um, I just wanted to make yeah. one more point that we need to always be really cautious around is generalising. So I would say there's the same continuum of um, respect for elders in the Aboriginal community as there is in any community, you know, hugely important in some families, less so in others. There's no, you know, there's no broad general yeah. statement really, mm-hmm. other than I think that thing about cu- holding culture might be, but, you know, I think that's still the same everywhere as well.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah. it's It raises an interesting point as well. I think obviously a lot of um culture for a lot of the different aboriginal groups is attached to their land and being on country and that sort of thing and obviously there are a lot of small communities that are a long way from services you know health services and whatnot as you get further from the the big cities so when it comes to sort of you know aging and and end of life when people might need sort of health care and medical treatment how do you get that balance right of allowing them to access that but obviously you know I'm assuming they would have to travel and and spend time off country to do that a lot of the time so how how do you sort of balance that tricky situation
3: with great difficulty
1: there's some very famous examples recently aren't there that was a very tricky question Craig
3: (laughs) we know the answer is uh, yeah um, the choices will not look like we would expect the choices will not look like what the medical profession might think was the most health promoting choice
2: mm-hmm.
3: unless we provide services where people are living um, y- yeah many We're people just... would rather be on country than receiving a health service
0: yeah I think that's kind of what I was and that getting can be at challenging yeah yeah I think that's where I was sort of getting at with that question is what yeah what from your observations and and from your experience, Caleb, with with family members and um, you know other people in your community, yeah, what 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 takes precedence there? Is it sort of remaining connected to country, or is it you know going going to seek healthcare? And I'm I'm you know obviously generalizing far too much here because obviously there's a range of different health issues that could be more or less serious. But yeah, I'm just, I'm just interested to get your perspective on that.
4: Yeah, it's um, a, a good question. <laughs> uh, I think um, yeah. sometimes I think it, it might depend on what the illness is as well. So, like I know diabetics, from the they have to come down quite a bit, and um, I, I don't know if they if they really have a choice. Like I think they with their care, I think they have to come down and like get dialysis and um yeah otherwise you you get really sick if you don't have your your dialysis done so I think they, things like diabetes and those things are kind of non-negotiable like people come down for extended periods of time or or if there's um I know cancer as well like a lot of um my family that have had different types of cancer have been at the Ronald McDonald house for extended periods and stuff but um Yes, it's a, it's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, I know a lot of people really, yeah, people a lot of people suffer a lot of loneliness and sort of, um, yeah, just sort of isolation and that kind of stuff when they visit Perth. I, I know my dad, because my dad's from up north, um, he does he does, like the rounds quite a bit, so he'll go to the, um, I don't know if you guys know, the Alloa Grove Hostel in Midland and then there was the Autumn Centre on Guildford Road where a lot of people from the Kimberleys and from the desert areas, so they'll stay when they're, when they're getting treatment. So, um, yeah, my, my dad, he normally does the rounds just visiting people because I think he understands that a lot more than actually I do. So um, mm. Yeah, it's actually probably a pretty good question for me to ask him, actually, when I get home. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's a, that's a really, yeah. really good question, Yeah. <laughs>
3: And I definitely think that the, you know, the flip of that is to say where we can providing any care on country, and we are starting to see um, technology becoming increasingly accessible. So, in particular, I mean, I know this in terms of RHD, where we now have a point of care screening. So instead of sending the um, child in this case into a major town to to be screened to check for heart disease, we can train a local provider to do it and then train them to get an idea from the image. It's not the best image, but they can have an idea and then they can refer or they can get, you know, telehealth now, you can get the clinician wherever they are to look at that image with them. So, you know, taking, taking those opportunities where we can and, <laughs> um, which sometimes can be hard because, you know, people who are the specialists in using that technology probably have a tendency to want to hold on to that specialisation and not see it freely available or more freely available in other areas. But I think, you know, we're getting... There's certainly places where that we can work harder to um, make care more easily accessible in remote communities. Do you think that... Yeah. Do you
1: think that uh, that perspective, like trying to make uh, healthcare more accessible, would work in aged care as well?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, it depends what the aged care is. So, we certainly certain, certainly see an aged caring community working well, which is, um, we had enough resource to be making a community lunch for the kids at school, but then um, we, you know, we'd look around and see who else needed a meal, and, you know, usually a good time at lunchtime to take some of the elders, you know, whenever we were cooking up. Um, mm-hmm. That's just a very simple bit of elder care, isn't it? It's like, well, what is elder care? You know, it's making sure people are comfortable and fed and, you know, watching out for their needs. I think it's hugely possible.
0: Yeah, really interesting, and um, none of these questions are easy <laughs> to answer. Otherwise, we'd be already doing it, right? <laughs> so, Pretty much.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Emmeron? keen to, to just hear a little bit more from you about you've been involved in trying to i guess for want of a better word help to train indigenous people to get involved in research and conduct research and that sort of thing um what what have you learned from that and and what have you learned from them that might make our research practice better obviously you know as non-indigenous researchers we we often bring a a fairly rigid kind of <laughs> specific lens in how we're trained to do epidemiology and, and analyze data and collect data and these sorts of things what, what have you learned from going through that process from the other side as to how we might be able to do things slightly differently yeah
3: um from the point of view of what i've learned with Applying no, so how, how Applying what I've learned in working with um, the Pop Health group is just keep talking about the real people. So um, we now have a phrase that I know Judy's team, or Judy anyway, uses it in the front of her um, PowerPoints to say, we acknowledge that this, this data we're presenting is real people. And we feel sad for this story because it's very easy as number crunchers to get stuck on the numbers. So that's a good starting point. And so similarly in articles, again, where you can, starting with the strength-based approach to acknowledge the cultural strength, the thousands of years of knowledge and history, the impacts of colonisation, You know, we can all own it all the time. No need to back down from that. You might be writing a very dry, stats-based paper. But we can keep putting that humanity in. And I think a great person to speak to about that is Ingrid Stacey, who is really going on that journey as an epidemiologist in her PhD. Really impressive how she's taking on that process. So Mm -hmm. that's my kind of one of my... It's not quite what you're answering, what you were asking, but that's yeah, that's
0: yeah, definitely interesting. Yeah, um, and, Caleb, I don't
3: know if you want to chime in there with um, so Caleb and I have been talking at the beginning of the year, especially about learning about research. So, even though Caleb did an undergraduate degree and read a lot of research, he didn't, they didn't in the undergraduate degree really unpack the research process. And always the thing for me coming back to that critical thinking idea is whose research question was it? What data was collected? What did they do with the data? What story was made from the data? And while you'll often now get, you know, where they where researchers have come into a situation and said, okay, we're not going to be the ones doing the research on, we're going to do research with Aboriginal people, but you'll find that they didn't actually have the Aboriginal community involved in setting a research question or probably even the data collection methods, but where they usually ask someone to be involved is in the bits where they need the person, in the um, recruiting of participants, the um, informed consent form, maybe the interview, so that bit in the middle, and then again they're not using them to help with the analysis. Again, Mm. generalising doesn't always happen. There's some great examples where that's not the case, but that's certainly... um, a big part of the issue. So anyway, to go back to what Caleb and I, you know, had these great conversations at the beginning of the year about what is research, and I don't know, Caleb, if you can remember some of the things you said back then about that sort of real, some real light bulb moments about how actually um, it might be possible to do different research or think about the research process. There's some we had some good conversations back then, didn't we?
4: some <laughs> One thing I can remember was just like when we were talking about methodology, like um, mm. yeah, like whose voices were being privileged in the um, yeah, in the in the research and whose point of view was being put forward. Um, yeah, that was the sort of big big moment for me. Mm. I didn't really hadn't really paid attention to that when I was um, writing essays or anything like that. <laughs> so, Yeah, it's good to be able to get a bit of context on it. Yeah.
0: That was probably one thing I can remember. Yeah, because it's working in a space where there are, uh, where Indigenous health issues come up a lot, because I I do a lot of work in corrections um, and healthcare and uh, health outcomes for people who've been through the correction system. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, you know what wh- first of all there's not enough indigenous people in in research, so it's great that you're to hear that you're getting involved Caleb, and, and hopefully there's a lot of others like you that are training and and taking an interest in, in this because I think that's the only way oh. we're going to address these these gaps um, in the knowledge and and improve our research design and how we do research um but yeah it's it a lot of the time like you were saying emma pe- people say, right, at this stage of the process we need an Indigenous person either listed on our grant application or um, to do this particular task or this set of tasks. But it's it's really disjointed and, and I think disrespectful um, to not have that involvement from start to finish um, because I, I just think we'd, have, we'd come up with much better, you know, higher quality research aims and research questions and obviously higher quality results and more usable results at the end of the day that are more relevant to the people that we're trying to help um and yeah i i guess i'm just airing a bit of frustration <laughs> at how it's been done up until now um yeah but, but um i'm interested to hear your thoughts on that and and you know how we how you think we might be able to even fast track it a little bit more than we we're already doing
1: and i'm also just going to butt in there as well like, personal perspective of that is it it almost feels like when you only include Indigenous people in Indigenous research in maybe the methods section, um, or have them on the grant, it's, it's almost like you're using the culture to get funding, <laughs> which yeah. is not, uh, not appropriate at all. Um, just to kind of get, get your research career up and running or, or, or something like that. It just makes so much more sense to have community and real people. Um, that gets affected by whatever you're researching mm. in the whole project.
3: Yeah, and then yeah. that's why I took that time doing my PhD to, to um, grow a group of Yolny researchers around what I was doing because I never wanted to be the only person coming out at the end of the story with my piece of research. So in the end, I felt that I was mostly facilitating <laughs> You know, it's their voice that comes through so strongly and um, in different ways. I mean, they it's not easy to continue to pursue a certain <laughs> c- career as someone living in a remote community, but this next project is a little bit of a step toward that for a minute. But, um, you know, that's the, the... So to ask how, it's about making time to work with people from the start and take time uh, <clears throat> and... Um, uh, you know, practical, developing research skills in a really practical way, but if you can, if possible, um, having a conduit in terms of recognition through training. So, you know, certificates that are based on, on you know, I've forgotten what it's called, real-world experience, and then you recognise their, their achievements through the certificate, for example, is a good way to start.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely an uh, um, an emerge. It's an emerging area, and I think we're sort of just scratching the surface so far uh, yeah. with our understanding of it. Um, but uh, but yeah, it is. Um, I am glad to hear that there are people like Caleb out there who are <laughs> grabbing the bull by the horns. And
1: yeah, Caleb, you're going to be a force to to reckon with, yeah. research <laughs> and medical doctor. Eventually, if Ooh. you decide to do both, like. My goodness you're gonna be a popular man
2: uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, um, yeah yeah so so i uh, you've just just kind of embarked on your your research journey caleb um what what's the next uh thing on your to do list for your your research like where are you going next <clears throat> well um
4: on my I've got the choice of doing a master's next year, Courtney. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so um submit this paper and then apply to do a master's next year. Um, as Yeah, t- sort of talking around the topic of um, talking about indigenous elders. So I've been trying to develop a topic with some of the um, researchers here at the centre. Um, I've sort of just come up with at the moment... Um, like the relevance of the Indigenous elder in today's, um, in the contemporary society we live in now, if, um, what's the relevance of the Indigenous elder? Um, just maybe, um, yeah, just working on a really developing objectives around that and what that would look like. And um, mm. yeah, so it's, um, I was speaking to one of the guys at one of the researchers in, in Perth City and he said that the, the um, project looks PhD so straight up so I'm not, I'm not sure I'm not, it's a bit scary uh, uh, I might have to try and build my capacity a bit more before I take it on but yeah it's um, yeah, just some of the, um, the just some of the uh, issues like around um, like upskilling Aboriginal elders in, in, in sort of Western ways as well of doing things and um, since a lot of uh, young Aboriginal people are living in cities now and very um, Westernised in in ways, um, yeah. So sort of looking around, maybe yeah, um, building the capacity of Indigenous elders to to be able to give guidance in that sort of in the in like a Western context as well. Um, and that's yeah, that's going to be a massive task. But, but uh, I think I think it's very um, yeah, I think it's very um, it's very relevant. I think there will be a lot of mm. benefits come out of it. Um,
1: all, all good masters projects lead on to a PhD project. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. So <laughs> sometimes sometimes they actually become a PhD project. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah
4: it's a, bit, a little bit scary, but exciting at the same time. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah, so I've sort but,
0: of been thinking along those kind of lines. Yeah. <laughs> so. mm. The common theme that kind of keeps coming up, you know, with Indigenous research and Indigenous issues is is that concept of time. And I think we, we had some guests on the podcast a few weeks ago, the Foundation for Indigenous Sustainable Housing or FISH, um, who went up into the Halls Creek Shire and built a house with with a local community that was actually just one kind of extended family and it, I think it took them three years from start to finish. You know, co-designing the house and get, you know, understanding the needs of the community, and then get, getting around to constructing the house and and whatnot. And I, I think time is that's the that's the key ingredient, isn't it? In all of this, you just have to be prepared to spend the time.
4: Uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, I'm conscious of. Speaking of time, I'm conscious that we've been <laughs> chatting for a while. Um, is there, is oh, there anything sorry. else Anything else you guys wanted to chat about before we signed off? Oh, oh just good. Thought,
4: Thank you. I, just me, um, just that I was
2: talking about that direct quote
4: before. Yeah, you oh, got yeah. it. Um, yeah, I, I found it. <laughs> um, yeah, awesome. Yeah. So, so um, it was just talking about cultural comfort. So, so it's like one of the ways that, was um, one of the sort of starting points for implementing the, the Old People's Programme. So it just says um, cultural comfort is an expansion of um, cultural safety in that it recognises local culture as being the starting point for the design of service provision rather than being a factor in design that needs to be accommodated to a mainstream culture. So, um, yeah. What you might be easy to listen to that back, but mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just thought it was yeah, sort of it was a bit of a light bulb moment for me.
0: Um hmm. Thanks for sharing and Th- thanks for thanks for funding it. Yeah, Might be easier to play
4: it back. It's a bit of a tongue twister, a but <laughs>
1: yeah, might have to listen to it a couple of times yeah. to like truly understand <laughs> the meaning of it. But yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, the first part with the the um, comfort and safety that yeah, that it makes a lot of sense. It, yeah, it's very interesting.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well. I'd like to thank both of you for your time today. It's been great um, having a chat and exploring some of these issues that we wouldn't ordinarily get to to talk about on the podcast. Um, so yeah, and sharing your, uh, your your experiences with us, it's been really interesting.
4: Right, thank you for having us. Uh, having us, Craig and Courtney. <laughs>
0: And that was our conversation with Dr. Emma Haynes and Mr. Caleb Rivers.
1: Yeah. As you can uh, probably see, it was a, or hear, not not see, you can't see a podcast. <laughs> uh, you can probably hear that it was a, a a very interesting and almost difficult conversation to have, I would say. But I think um, both you and, you and me, Craig, have kind of learned quite a lot from having this conversation and it's been really fascinating
2: yeah
0: i mean sometimes i'm a bit naive in this space and oh, me too <laughs> you know I'm, I'm sort of asking questions i i'm not expecting an answer a perfect answer to the question but i'm asking mm. quite ambitious questions you know that i'm sure people like emma and caleb have, have thought about a lot and uh, are taking the time to try and answer you know throughout their careers um and there's obviously no quick or easy solution to a lot of these quite complex issues, you know, that the Indigenous community faces mm-hmm. around, around the country. Uh, you know, we've got sort of challenges around people being a long way from where health services are provided a lot of the time. And, and it was really great to hear Emma talk about the fact that we can actually start to have more of these... Services provided on country and yeah. use the technology a bit better and, and, and also up the capacity of local community members to be able to do some of these tasks, you know, to help improve people's health, you know, from where they are rather than having to travel to a city or a town or whatever.
1: Yeah, and it just seems like... Again, I think this is a very naive perspective for me as well. It it seems like there are some very simple solutions to make things a lot better um, just by understanding the story. Mm. And I think a lot of people in our position think they understand the story without realising they don't understand the story.
0: (laughs) You know know what the... I think what the the main issue is is that people who haven't listened to the story yet, yeah, they just assume they assume that they this know. Yeah, the yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, definitely.
0: We're, whereas what we're talking about, yeah, what you're sort of talking about and what what come up in the podcast is mm. these things take time, mm. and sometimes you just have to let somebody say what they want to say and get to the get to the point that they're get, uh, trying to make their own way. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And it might take a bit longer than than you were expecting. Um, but, yes, it's that process of letting people work their way through, you know, what it is that they, they're wanting to tell you. And yep. some of it maybe wasn't what you were expecting to hear or what you'd asked to hear. Or
1: you want but, to hear.
0: <laughs> yeah, but it's but it's an important part of the process of them telling that story.
1: Definitely.
0: Yeah, because um, we can't answer all these stories with administrative health data. Oh, <laughs> you know well, that's what but, i like
1: to do
0: a part of it we could you know yeah. a part of it we can get the picture we can get from administrative health data but not
1: but, all of
0: it but not all of it and arguably not the most important parts of it agreed you know? yeah so yeah so it's really it's really interesting and i'm you know it's heartening to hear that there are people like caleb out there that are that are investing in this area you know and, yeah. and wanting to do, to do more and learn more and develop their skills and then in turn probably help us develop our skills you know
1: yeah absolutely and his um his idea for master's project sounds so interesting um yeah because i i did not realize uh that uh, indigenous elders won't pass on information unless Mm. they think that the person's ready for it and that that will possibly come through the questions that that caleb wants to ask um yeah, I had no idea. That was really interesting. And it, it kind of, it can kind of somewhat explain why maybe in some areas some of the culture has been lost. Because mm. there's also in Western societies this, um, this push of everyone kind of delaying a lot of life, um, I put this in, in bunny years, life objectives. For example, the one thing I can think of is like, um, you know, women are having kids at a later age. Right. Mm. So it's taking a longer time to officially grow up. Um and I can see that almost helping well not helping, but increasing the loss of culture.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh... Uh, it's just just one of one of Not many, many. <laughs> things things that's changing as uh, you know as we evolve I guess and as our lifestyles yeah. evolve and uh, our journeys in life and obviously people uh, tend to live longer these days mm-hmm. due to advances in medicine and whatnot so yeah things are changing you know expectations change and um, yeah our experiences seem to change with that as well yeah. so oh, yeah, so many great. brain
1: thoughts so many different ideas. <laughs> yeah oh it's hard
0: yeah, it is yes well that, I think that brings us to the end of um, this sort of mini kind of series of I think it was three episodes that we did with yeah so we an, had um, an, an Megan Indigenous Williams Focus.
1: and um, uh, Christian and the fish
0: yep yep the fish people and then the fish people. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh boy! That's, yeah,
0: no, that's not meant to be a majority term. <laughs> no, that's no, the, f- the foundation for indigenous sustainable health. Yeah, um, and they were they were the, the expert house designers and mm-hmm. builders who called in local experts from a, an Aboriginal community mm-hmm. to assist them to to build a house. Yeah, uh, and then obviously our chat today, um, yep. which have all been great and informative in in different ways all all of those episodes so if if there's if you're listening to this one and you haven't heard the others I would encourage you to go back and Take a listen. Uh, and if you wanted to give us some feedback on this or any of the other episodes, how do we do that, Courtney?
1: Look, you can't. We don't want feedback. <laughs> no, I'm joking. So <laughs> you can uh, you can tweet us at healthmeanswhat uh, and you can also email us meaningofhealth at outlook.com. So please and chat to us. We would love to hear from you.
0: And in breaking news, they can also find us on Facebook.
1: Oh, yeah. We have a Facebook page now. Um, who's running that? Is you? Is that you or me? I
0: think it's, bo- it's, it's both, both of us. Uh, All right, that's good. That's good. It sounds like it hasn't got a, a pilot at the moment, from what you've just said.
1: <laughs> yeah, look, <laughs> no. it's, it's, it's uh, Facebook's not my forte, uh, but yeah. you know, we have it now. It's there, and we, the we the rec- the episodes get posted up. So, you know, something's yeah. happening.
0: <laughs> please, please like us or follow us or whatever it is that you have to do on Facebook. <laughs> please so like I'm, us. <laughs> i'm no, no aficionado but yeah you you can find us on there and you can see the new episodes come out and if mm-hmm. you subscribe to the page or follow the page then it should just appear in your facebook feed you know every time we put a new episode up
1: or you can get notifications as well
0: yeah yeah uh, yeah, and same on twitter yeah excellent well thanks very much once again courtney mm, thanks Greg. Um, yeah we're looking forward to bringing you the next few episodes as well we've got some Excellent guests coming up. That should hopefully be really interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So yeah, in the meantime, stay safe, stay dry, stay warm.
1: And look after your pets.
0: And look after your pets and make sure they're <laughs> safe, dry, and warm too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, Greg. Until until, until next time. Thank you. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Weber with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming.